Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome to the Feathered Desert, and Kirsten and I today are here to talk about bird migration, what we know, how we know it, and the unknown, so what we don't know. So as the Southwest Desert awaits the beginning of the influx of migrants flying over our heads to seek a must-earned respite before traveling on to Central America and beyond, we thought the time was right to revisit bird migration. And Kirsten's going to start us off with a brief history. Yes, and, and we do mean brief. This is just going to hit the highlights. A brief history um, highlights of discovery in bird migration. That's what we're going to start off with here. So in 1822, German villagers discover a white stork impaled by a spear made of African wood. And of course, they're like, what's happening here? Yeah. But this provided the first evidence of migration between continents. I can't imagine how the stork flew as long as it did with that spear in it, but thank goodness it did. In 1896, in Wisconsin, an amateur ornithologist recorded some of the first vocalizations of migratory birds. These vocalizations will be later dubbed nocturnal flight calls and become one way that scientists monitor bird migration for decades to come. I find it interesting that the ornithologist was out at night yes. recording stuff. Although maybe he was looking for owls or nighthawks or something like that. So in 1899, Hans Christian Cornelius Mortensen, they really liked long names back Yeah, then. thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, he places metal rings around the legs of starlings in Denmark to study their movements. So this was the beginning of the scientific use of bird banding which we still do today. A decade later, in uh, 1999, right? A decade's 100, right? No, no decade's, decade's 10. 10. So then in 1909, the American Ornithologist Union forms the American Bird Banding Association to oversee and coordinate efforts at a national scale. In 1920, the U.S. Bureau of Biological Survey takes over the banding program after the Migratory Bird Treaty Act passes in 1918. And then banding starts with waterfowl, which has developed the concept, well, I'm sorry, which helped actually develop the concept of the four migratory flyways in North America. So without those little bands on those ducks, we wouldn't be able to understand how and where the birds are migrating. So um, that's cool. We can thank Hans Christian Cornelius Mortensen for that. I just felt I needed to say his name again. Say his name one more time. (laughs) I just think that with um, bird science in particular, a lot of field work goes unappreciated. Yes. So a bit more history, and believe me, this history is all going to tie together. So hang in there, those of you who aren't history buffs. In 1941, biologists working for the British in World War II used a telescope to confirm that a mysterious military radar signal was generated by a flock of gannets, which is seabirds. 
It's the first proof that radar detects flying birds. I have to do more proofreading. In 1947, inspired by traditional silk bird trapping nets found in Japan, Oliver Austin introduces mist nets to the to ornithological research. Those are extremely important. Yes. Still today, they're used, yes. used in the same way. So in 1952, 300 volunteer sites were set up and they helped to create the first continent-wide snapshot of migration patterns by using telescopes focused on the moon to count birds flying at night. Oh my gosh, can yes. you imagine having to get the volunteers and setting that up and even having the idea yeah. how to sell it? Yeah. That it's really cool, though, that they did that because yes. it turns out to be one of the biggest mysteries of, of birds. Still, to this yeah. day. Okay, so that's a little bit of groundwork. Let's jump ahead 58 years. In 2010, Cornell Lab of Ornithology expands its eBird app. So now we're in the, the um, internet age, um, which is a globally crowdsourcing app that allowed a ton of new data about migration. And then it launches BirdCast, which uses weather radar to predict nights of intense migration activity which is cool for us to go outside and look at, and it's helpful for their volunteers. Yes, but if the, they wouldn't have even... If it hadn't been for the biologists in 1941, they might not have known that they could do that. Exactly. Or that they should do it. Yes. At all. So in 2012, the MOTIS Wildlife Tracking System, which uses miniature radio transmitters and an automated network of ground receiver towers, launches in Canada. More than 30,000 animals, mostly birds, will be tracked by the system by 2022, which isn't terribly important. We've got to know where these guys are going so that we know how to help them. In 2020, a new space-based wildlife tracking system called Icarus, I think this is cool, but I think maybe the name, they could have picked yeah, a different one. It didn't turn know. out well for him. No. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's awesome. So Icarus begins operation with receivers placed on the International Space Station. So they're tracking animals from space. And what they're hoping to do is that researchers will be able to use lighter, lower cost transmitters while producing better quality data. They're tracking animals from space. It's amazing. Yes, and all of this history and all that leads, um, all of this brings us to today and geo locators geolocators um, this is a half gram sensor that records light intensity to glean location estimates and even tinier nano tags that emit radio signals geolocators have been around for two decades but if it wasn't for these most incurred advancements with satellite tracking that's made this a little gem more helpful to birds and scientists and how does it help? It allows researchers to track the movements of migratory birds to find out where they stop along the way, where they eventually end up, when they head back, timing's very important with migration, and how long it takes both ways. There's still a lot of field work, to, work involved with netting, banding, attaching, and removing these geolocators because even though it emits signals along the way, they still need to find that geolocator, so they need to find the bird that they attached it to right. and um, remove it. 
Right. So that they can get all that information off, off of it. And sometimes, depending on the size of the bird, it's like a little sticker or something that they can slip on the feather. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's more like a backpack that they have hooked to the back of the bird. Um, sometimes it's um, on the the leg because they band it on one side and they'll put a geolocator on the other side. It just it just depends on what works for the size of the bird Very and cool. what the scientists have available. Yeah, but it's totally awesome. Yes, and once they're in the net and they've done all that stuff, now we can do some DNA science. Yes, because that's so, important too. Yes, so there's cutting edge science out there with the key being in the feathers of the birds themselves. So that's where that comes in. I've caught my bird I'm still using those mist nets from way back when. And uh, we found the bird, I found my geolocator, I'm getting that information, but there's so many more things I can learn about that bird through their feathers. So they carry everything that we want to know about them right in their feathers. Um, but many secrets can be revealed with this DNA. I mean, we can't like ask the bird, like, hey, what's been going on? What are you doing? Yeah. So we Where take have you a been? What have you eaten? Right, what, what have you been? Eating? What yeah. have you been through? What toxins have you encountered? So we catch our birds in the, uh, the nets and then we'll tag them and band them. We've been doing that same thing, putting a band right on their leg. And uh, then we document everything about them. So we very gingerly take them out of the net. And generally, people will put them in little bags, little cloth cotton bags, and tie them shut to keep them very calm. And then we're going to do a bunch of measurements. We're going to take beak measurements. We're going to take wing measurements. We're going to look at feathers. We're going to look at all sorts of different things. And then we're very, very gingerly going to pick two feathers, usually, and pluck them carefully from the bird. It's going to be in a place that is not going to harm their flight pattern. So probably usually like a secondary flight feather or something closer to the armpit maybe. And um, take those and we're going to put that with all of our information. And then now that we have all this science to help us get the DNA information out of that, we're going to be able to find out so many different things. So once we've taken all our information, we do release the bird, set it on its way. And the DNA that we can get out of this tells us things like what have they been eating? Um, how is their health? And uh, what kind of toxins are they encountering? Is climate change something that is affecting them? So we can learn so much from their little feathers. Yeah. So all this science is assisting researchers in developing strategies to help birds and ourselves uh, mitigate the warming climate. Studies are showing that some migrants are, sh are showing up earlier and having two clutches of eggs. In order to do this, the parent birds are pushing themselves and taking more risks to their own safety and health. North American song, I found this very interesting. North American songbird migrants appear to be staying in sync with their offspring's food supply. So those migrants are ones that just migrate from Florida up, you know, up to Maine. Yeah. Or from Arizona up to Alaska. Yeah. Within our, our continent. Um, that might reflect the continent's forest health. Woodlands, especially on the East Coast, have caterpillar fauna. They have a lot more more because they're not suffering from drought although they might be drowning right yeah, now right now the yeah. current weather conditions they're more diverse and um then the found in europe's woodlands and north american songbirds have a little more wiggle room built into the timing of their migration while european migrants can easily miss their brief insect supply now i found this interesting because usually i have tunnel vision when i'm looking at birds and i'm only looking at the birds that um on my in my own country right per se even though I know that birds that visit the southwest 
spend the winter in South America and Central America and Mexico right. or, you know, um, fly up to Canada, I still have tunnel vision, but I've never actually looked at the world from North America and the European continent. Right. So I found that very interesting. So one of the big questions that you might be thinking right now is, well, how can I help? So what we can do um, is get involved with the community. So most of what we shared today really would not have been possible without citizen science. So being involved in your birding community is one way. So you could join something like your local Audubon and Desert Rivers here and uh, Arizona's Maricopa County now we have one there. Um, so lots of different uh, Audubon communities here in the Southwest. Um, and one of the best ways to do it actually really is to look in your own backyard. So if you don't have time to go out or maybe you're someone who stays in more or you don't have the ability to walk around as much, um, you could do stuff in your own backyard. It's very cool. And we've mentioned this so many times before, but it is definitely worth repeating native plants. If you plant native plants, they will come. So it is well known within the bird research community that bird migrants will also exclusively seek out nutritious natives to non-native plants. So you may think, well, this plant, it's got berries on it, but maybe it's a Chinese variant of something. The birds that live here on this continent have never come in contact with that type of plant. So they're not just gonna be like, oh, I can eat that. They don't know what it is. They have no idea. It's not in their brain. It's not in their memories to do that. So native plants. If you have native plants in your yard, you're gonna see a higher biomass and diversity of insects and birds. Now, many of you are going like, insects, I don't want more insects. You do want more insects. Because especially during migration season, birds need that extra bit of protein. And if you put those native plants, you attract all the pollinators at, that need to go to them to make their life cycle, and then that's also gonna attract your birds. And a lot of our bird migrants are in, insect eaters. Yes, they are, a lot of them. So just having more options for the birds really is the first step in giving them as much um, slack as possible when they're dealing with these climate-driven changes. So the more options we have for them, the better off they're gonna be, is essentially what we're saying. So as a community, supporting and protecting larger swaths of high-quality habitat can also help bird communities weather the effects of warming. So let's say you guys are in an area where someone is thinking, should we make this little spot a garden or should we make it into a parking lot? Let's go out to our city council and say garden. And you offer to help work it. You guys plant native plants. You can even make it a vegetable garden that could help your community. That also helps birds as well. And doing things like that or protecting our uh, national forests while you're planting native plants in your own yard, uh -huh. it's a double whammy. So these protected areas also act like stepping stones for birds so that are driven out of their habitat by warming temperatures and changing ecologies, allowing southern species to shift north, which we have seen a lot of that. Yes. Native plants will save the world, people. Yes, they will. So in doing research for this podcast, it became very apparent to me that as much as we know about birds and their travels, there is just as much or more we don't know. And I'm taking some comfort in the fact that as humans, we are consistently underestimating birds' resili resiliency, but we, can't be com we cannot become complacent. So just because we see that they are adapting, right. like shifting north and they need to, or, change, or increasing their timing with um, nesting. Um, we shouldn't leave it up we just to We shouldn't leave them. it up to the birds. And because um, 
they're compensating for changes that they encounter, which to me only adds on wonder to my opinion of birds in general. But the reality is that birds need us to be a success as much as we need them for our own success. Yes, I agree. And having said that, this wonderful podcast about migration, I thought we would end on some reading recommendations. Yeah. For those of you who are not quite much as into the reading of uh, natural history and whatnot, there is a gentleman, his name is Scott Widensall, and he has written two wonderful books about migration. So if this is something that really interests you, he's a wonderful author. He takes a lot of scientific information that makes it very easy to read. And one of them, the most recent one, is called a World on the Wing, The Global Odyssey of Migratory Birds by Scott Widensall. And we will put that in our show notes. One that's a bit older, um, which talks about slightly different things, is called Living on the Wind. And it's across the hemisphere with migratory birds. And in this one, he talks a lot about uh, cross-hemispheric migration, which is crazy that there are birds that actually migrate from the north pole to the south pole yeah or pretty like much Arctic that turn. yes that's that's just crazy to me but those are some great reading and then it'll help you start thinking about migration and uh so interesting yep well his um article that i read for this research is what got me thinking i didn't like i said i never really thought about North America and European, I never thought to compare those migratories because the European birds migrate from Africa. Right. So I had tunnel vision, and he keeps you from having tunnel vision. Absolutely. So it's a very good recommendation. Yes. All right. Go out there. If you're listening to this during a fall or springtime, go out with your binoculars. Start to see some of our migrating friends. <laughs>